0: Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack, that's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one time PayPal donation to Truth Jihad at gmail.com. Welcome, this is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live here on Revolution.Radio every Saturday. I'm sorry, every Friday. I'm getting confused. False flag weekly news happens every Saturday. Tomorrow, Dr. E. Michael Jones will appear as co-host, talking about the biggest stories of 2023 and what's on the agenda for 2024. Tonight's radio show, however, is happening Friday. And uh, in the second hour... We have a brand new Truth Jihad Radio guest, Mahmoud Odi, or maybe pronounce it Mahmoud Ad. I'm not sure. I've never had him on before, and I'll have to find out. He is from Palestine, born in Haifa, has a new book out called 2048, A Manifesto for the One-State Solution in Israel-Palestine, and it's quite good. So that should be a good hour. The first hour, I'm pleased to welcome back one of my academic freedom-fighting heroes, Dr. Pierce Robinson. He has a new article out called The Perils of Studying Propaganda. He works with the Organization for Propaganda Studies, and he's noticed that despite so-called academic freedom, it seems that the propagandists don't want us analyzing and critiquing what they do. So we're going to talk about some of that pushback that he and others have gotten. In fact, let's start talking about it right now. Hey, welcome, Piers Robinson. How are you, Pierce?
1: Hi, Kevin. I'm very well. How are you?
0: I'm okay. I'm hanging in there and, uh, boy, it's, uh, it's a crazy time to be alive. That's for sure. Uh, and, uh
1: yeah, th- things don't seem to be calming down, do they? I, I keep saying to people, it'll all be over by Christmas. <laughs>
0: right. It yeah. It's
1: and, getting and, worse.
0: <clears throat> and, you know, what, and what will be over? And if, if, you know, if the Palestine genocide slows down, you know, what will replace it? A, uh, a war with China? It seems like we're going from crisis to crisis and it's actually gotten worse you know i i was thinking after 911 and then all those 911 false flag follow ups that you know maybe things would would sort of settle down as people got tired of blaming the muslims and uh you know and, and having all these little small slaughters blamed falsely on islamic groups and then suddenly we had covid and uh then we had ukraine and now we have genocide in palestine and and what's next
1: yeah there's a lot ro- i mean mark Crispin miller uh- Colleague of mine, and I think you know him well. Um, yeah, you know, he describes it as a rolling thunder of psyops that we're going through at the moment. Um, you know, COVID-19, Ukraine, Gaza, Israel. Um, and, you know, the frequency there is is quite remarkable. If, as you just said, you have this big gap in a way between 9-11 and, and COVID-19 um prior to that you know a big gap between jfk assassination and, and 9/11 i mean i know there's lots going on in between those gaps but there seems to be some kind of spacing for these major i like, you know, like i like peter dale scott's term structural deep events um but you know there's there's a rolling thunder of them now um and it is yeah having everybody asking what's going to happen next um I don't know. Was that actually a question in there? You were asking, yeah, me what, yeah. it's uh, sa- asking me to get my crystal ball out, <laughs> right? Yeah, get
0: out your crystal ball because it's almost twenty twenty four, and sure, yeah, nobody yeah. could have predicted this last series of, of shock and no events. So maybe, maybe you'll get it right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, what is there to lose anymore, anyway? <laughs> right. Let's make predictions. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, I, I read a lot of this in, in terms of the end of the Western Empire. Um, I think that, you know, the writing has been on the wall for some time that the West's military, economic and also ideational power is is sharply diminished. Um, Ukraine made it pretty clear and has made it pretty clear that um, NATO was not able to prevail um, there. And that conflict seems to be being wrapped up pretty quickly and sort of uh, shove it under the rug and pretend nothing happened on the part of the Western alliance. So, you know, military ideational, I mean, you know, I, my, my sense, and then it is my kind of subjective interpretation, but my sense is that, you know, the Palestinians are winning a huge level of global support and the West is losing an awful lot of credibility for its stance in terms of supporting Israel. And, you know, that, you know, maybe that is the final nail in the coffin, coffin of Western ideational, you know, the, the shining light on the hill that everyone in the world or a lot of people in the world seem to look to is is over. Um, so I, I see a lot of this as, as yes, as, as the end of empire and and for those reasons. Um, but, you know, what's happening, right, is that it seems that, you know, whether you want to call it the military industrial complex or, or whatever, but the permanent war machine and these these power networks, these power elites who have who've been pushing this imperialism, they're not giving up the ghosts, are they? And I suppose everyone's wondering, uh, how far are they going to escalate this? Are they going to create a generalized war across the Middle East, you know, take on Iran? Are we going to come into conflict with China? I mean, you know, how crazy are these people in charge? Um, and, you know, I, I think part of me thinks that it's just going to come to an end as a hard stop there, and they're not going to be able to push much harder. And, you know, they either risk crazy, you know, ridiculous escalation, which will, again, just end in failure for the West. Or they'll just at some point, there'll be enough cracks within the elites. There'll be enough emerging, as it were, elite dissenters that, um, you know, enough people in positions of power will say, look, we need to alter course in the international system. Um, so that's that, if there's a prediction in it, that's my kind of prediction. I, I think we're coming to an end. I'm kind of hoping that they're not going to escalate into sort of crazy territory. Um, but I think, you know, I think the West is, there's a lot of people having to wake up and smell the coffee now across Western elites. So I, I think that's where I see that going. But at the same time, we also have this COVID thing that happened, right? We have this kind of issue over, I mean, You know there's a number of theories out there but you know you have this kind of globalist technocratic elite groupings coming from the west but also with you know a certain kind of global presence as well pushing through you know these broad drives you have the pandemic preparedness agenda with the you know which is basically a biosecurity regime you have censorship regimes being rolled you know out across the west across Western democracies, you know, Digital Services Act in Europe and, and so on. Um, and, you know, sort of you kind of wonder, sort of, is, is the Western Empire going to come bumping to an end? You know, and you kind of have this moment to the multipolar world. But as that's happening, you, you then have these kind of power structures emerging at this kind of, sort of global level, pushing through, um, yeah, biosecurity regime. That's the only way I can describe it. And biosecurity regimes which uh, don't have a very positive impact upon <laughs> levels of democracy. Um, so I, I think that's another little prediction in there. I think that maybe if the Western Empire does grind to a halt finally, um, you know, we are then going to have a battle to fight on that front. Um, so those are my predictions.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, with, you know, regarding the, the biosecurity regime that is coming into place, there's sort of, you know, two different ways of looking at that and of looking at the COVID crisis. And I guess it depends sort of you know, whether you analyze it as a globalist conspiracy in which mm-hmm. people who are pushing for a one world order are using this uh, kind of you know, medical uh, pretext to establish international institutions that will override the sovereignty of nation states as a step towards world government that many fear mm-hmm. will be totalitarian. And that seems to be the majority view among the COVID dissidents. The other view, and I actually lean towards it more in regarding COVID, is that COVID, the whole COVID um, crisis, was the product not so much of globalists who are trying to give power to the who uh, to erode national sovereignties, but rather, it, I believe it was a neoconservative American military biological attack on China and Iran that was designed to slow China's economic growth or reduce the growth differential between the U.S. and mm. the West versus China, and then, of course, also to hit Iran. And it did, of course, mysteriously jump from mm. uh, Wuhan, where it hit at exactly the worst possible place in time for China. Just, uh, it was just spreading big time in advance of the Chinese New Year when virtually the entire nation of China is crossing through Wuhan, the national transportation hub. And if it hadn't been for their very quick reaction, it probably would have uh, hit initially much harder in China. And then where did it jump to, of all places, home, Iran, where there are no Chinese people? <laughs> and, uh, and it yeah. knocked out a whole bunch of high-level um, Iranian mullahs. So you know, given that and lots of other things, including proven uh, foreknowledge by the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, that knew it was there would be a terrible pandemic coming out of Wuhan at a time when only maybe a couple of people noticed they had scratchy throats in Wuhan – uh, I think it's, it's pretty clear what that really was. And so therefore this, you know, the way we should frame COVID is as part of a world takeover attempt to create a one world government using U.S. and Western military power to defeat all of the independent countries and impose world government from, uh, from a, a U.S. A military industrial complex, uh, and, you know, Zionist financial regime yeah. kind of Power structure. It's not like and and the people who actually want real international institutions with power, in my view, are many of them, at least are the good guys as people who would like to democratize the United Nations, give it the power to stop the genocide in Gaza and so on and so forth. That's actually a much more reasonable position. And so Soros, who actually leans towards that position in some ways, I, I, I don't like the guy. There are a lot of things about him I hate. But I'm not sure he's really the bad guy here. I think it's the neocons who and the uh, militarists who are who are the problem. So um, you know that I know that that's a minority take among the COVID skeptics. Uh, what do you think?
1: No, I, I, I I'm I'm completely with you on keeping an open mind as to exactly where the power axes lie with COVID 19. Um, and I'm, I'm actually interesting enough. I'm writing a piece at the moment with Vanessa Beeley on, on kind of like on this issue. Um, well, it is it's very much on this issue. It's also to do with getting past left-right divide and so on. Um, but it is setting out these kind of broad positions. You do have this kind of globalist world takeover kind of thesis, and then you have, you know, a, a very plausible and that you described, I think fairly well idea that a lot of what we see of COVID-19 is in fact an outgrowth of. Essentially the Western military industrial complex and its penetration into global organizations and it is part of, you know, a projection of power. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty open minded. I think where I I sit on this is, is I try to take a kind of a strictly sort of sociological empirical. Views that, you know, until we've got the kind of power network analyses done, we need to be relatively open minded and not sort of sign up to one particular theory or thesis about exactly what's going on. But, but I am inclined at the moment with everything I'm looking at with COVID-19 to, to think that this seems to be quite strongly rooted in the West. And I think when you sort of, sort of locate that in, in terms of what we know about the Western Empire, you know, distributions of power, both economic, military changing across the international system. You know, it starts to make, I think, a little bit more sense to think of COVID in those terms. But, you know, I'm not ruling out any of the possibilities at the moment. I think this is one of these, um, as it were, puzzles, which, you know, if you think about it, it takes a lot of Work and research and analysis to start to get a clear picture of the power structures and the networks, which which can actually start to give you a clear idea of what's going on and so on. In, in this case, um, and so I think it's good to keep an open mind on that. I, I would do one thing. I would say doing a lot of work with with um, the Panda organization, which is based in South Africa, but which was, you know, initially sort of really science orientated people looking at, at the virus and so on. What What is becoming very, very clear that it's the evidence that this was primarily a constructed pandemic, right? That, you know, that there was not just um sort of an exaggeration, but essentially a construction of something which wasn't really there. So there there was a virus, there were people dying and so on. Um, But the kind of manipulation of figures that were going on, um, the use of the PCR test and so on, and what's coming out with a lot of scientists, doing these analyses saying, well, look, you, you look at um, the, the supposed spread of this condition or this uh, pathogen, and you only see excess mortality kicking off when you actually have lockdowns and change treatment protocols. <laughs> and the figures, you know, do stack up in that way. That's what it looks like. So it looks like this is a pretty big constructed crisis, um, you know, for the purposes of power and control, who's... Who's driving that is, is you know, we can keep an open mind on it and so on, but it's certainly something which is, uh, shaping up to look like a very, very big deception, I think, um, in terms of what was going on, in terms of what was presented and sold to people. Um, but, but that aside, no, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of, you know, very open to this. Oh, I think it's very important that people, certainly in the COVID resistance, um, keep their eyes open as to, you know, different possibilities about what has been going on. And I think, you know, for sure, some people clearly, as you say, are in this kind of globalist takeover mode analysis. Um But at the same time, you know, there's also the thesis you outlined. And at the same time, there's also a lot of geopolitics going on, which is real <laughs> and affecting people, you know, Gaza, Israel and so on. And, you know, there's been a bit of a tendency, hasn't there, to kind of sort of uh from some of the COVID resistance to say, all. Oh, gaza israel ukraine it's just distractions and so on and people are being you know and people should not pay attention to what's going on there which i think is um a very silly thing to do given the reality of what's happening in gaza and given the reality of the war in ukraine um so it's important to keep an eye eye on in a sense both of these processes as they um unravel and and roll forward
0: absolutely well i i think you're you're right that the, it's a, it was a constructed pandemic in the sense that what we were being told was obviously kind of a lie from the very beginning, starting with this notion that we have to be terrified of the likelihood of terrible natural pandemics emerging and killing huge numbers mm-hmm. of people. You know, we haven't seen Anything really like we've seen? Yeah, the flu hits here and there. 1959, the year I was born, was a, a bad flu year, and, and so on and so forth. But there, there hasn't really been uh, a major mortality uh, global pandemic since the flu of 1919, and there were very special conditions at that point. Mm. And so, when we have been hearing for you know 20 years uh, that, or even more to a certain extent, that it's just inevitable that there's going to be a naturally emerging pandemic that's going to create a terrible threat and kill huge, unprecedented numbers of people. We're going to have to lock down all of society and go to an emergency, yadda, yada. This This obviously is false. And so the question is, well, why are they saying this thing that's obviously false? I mean, the, the odds any given year that there would be a naturally emerging pandemic that would kill huge numbers of people are probably – lower than the odds that the sunspots would go crazy. Like they have like back in the yeah. 19th century and early 20th century and fry all of our electronics and create an even bigger problem, right? Something like that could happen, but the odds are maybe what, one in 50, one in a hundred or probably less. So why are, why were they harping on that? And I, I think, I think it was probably because of advances in germ warfare technology and that what they know is that, in fact, it's quite likely that artificially constructed pathogens are likely to be a serious problem one way or another. Like, you know, PNAC back in, in 2000 in their Rebuilding America's Defenses document said they, they actually kind of looked forward to the day that uh, race-specific biological weapons would become a, quote-unquote, politically useful tool. So they know mm. that you know, if, and if you read the history of bio war, uh, you know, you see uh, even back as far as World War Two, these scientists were killing huge numbers of people and creating these incredibly dangerous lethal concoctions. And with science and biology where it is now compared to World War Two, it's kind of surprising that we haven't had even worse uh, things than COVID. But uh, So I, I think that's what's mm. really so it's really a militarized. It's a military problem. It's not a natural emerging pathogen problem, and the people at the top know that, but they don't want to tell the truth to the public, so they frame it as a natural emerging pathogen problem. But meanwhile, where all the action is, is with militaries and biowarfare. There have been lots mm-hmm. and lots of real biowar attacks, uh, mostly by the U.S. that we know about, uh, and – Covid kind of fits in as one of those, and just because it only kills like one in two hundred to one in five hundred people, doesn't mean it's not an incredibly effective economic bioweapon. weapon. You kill one in two hundred, one to one in five hundred people in some targeted country, and they have to react. They have to lock down, right? I mean, otherwise the pile of corpses will be in you know in the millions in a, in a country the size of the United States. So. Uh, I, I think that's the way we need to frame it. And I, I actually think that the propagandists tried to herd us into this, you know, naturally occurring pathogen versus, you know, globalists. Uh, and it's actually not, it's not, there's no such thing as COVID. There's no such thing as viruses. All of these kinds of approaches, uh, I think, were designed to spread chaos and to keep us from noticing that it's really a geopolitical problem based on militarized uh, bioweapons.
1: Mm-hmm. There is, I mean, there are some scientists who argue that sort of their capability in this territory is far less, that there's a real ramping up of this fear of what might happen with bioweapons. And of course, you know, the point with COVID is that, you know, if, and this is... um, making very clear if it was a bioweapon etc and it was accidentally released or, or, or whatever um, you know it it did not have a, a particularly destructive effect uh, you know people think that it killed lots of people but it's not what you see when you look at the figures you see excess mortality and ill etc starting to spike after they lock down and after they change the protocols after they push the old people into out of the hospitals into the old people's homes they shove people onto ventilators and, and so on all of those protocols w- which you know were incredibly harmful and so on so so this thing that was you know whatever this covid thing is out of a lab or naturally emerging this thing is 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 not um you know it's something similar to the flu which we've all lived with for a very very long time um I mean, this kind of, I mean, there's a broader issue, isn't there, with, with biological weapons. You know, there's, a variety, there's this question of, you know, pathogens and viruses and so on. Um but then, you know, there's you know, all these other kind of ideas about you know, genetic, you know, uh, biological weapons and, and so on. I mean, you know, for sure, I mean, I guess, um authorities and, and governments can use, you know, develop these weapons and use them, etc. I suppose where I'm going with this is it's difficult to see how, you know, whether these things will ever sort of be, you know, is it as bad as nuclear capability, nuclear bombs? You know, you know, we have the capability to destroy the world several times over with nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, it just becomes another very destructive weapon in the arsenal. Um, and so again, sort of, I, I think these things are going to be, you know, I, I, I think. It strikes me that the primary purpose is, is that it's the politics of fear. It's finding ways of manipulating and controlling populations, threatening other powerful actors in the international system through these, you know, the, st- striking the fear of God of, into in people of these weapons. And that's most of what you're seeing. Um, you know, but. I, I guess, you know, I'm hesitating a little bit because, you know, maybe there are developments of these biological weapons, which, which truly can be, um, you know, disastrous on a global level. Um, or maybe it's all just very, very much hyped up and, and, and so on. Um, I mean, this, this is the thing with, you know, I think there would be OPCW work I've involved with the chemical weapons. I mean, you, you have this kind of, you know, you know, chemical weapons are banned, et cetera. And, and that's a good thing that they are banned and, and so on. Um, but, you know, but you look at war and you look at the warfare, you look at Gaza, you know, sort of we're you know, the destructiveness and the killing and the maiming, you know, we're, we're pretty good at doing all of that stuff with our traditional weapons. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good if point. you just look at it is it a quanti- in a quantitative way so sort of how 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 do people get killed in wars and so on is it is it sort of an anthrax attack or is it a is it a, a sarin attack etc or well, no most people are getting killed because of high explosives and bullets um you know so um yeah that's <laughs> have you see my point. That,
0: yeah that that that's that a good point. And you know having sort of I took a dive into reading up on you know some of the literature of biological warfare during mm. the early covid period and it was you know a, i don't maybe maybe it's not all entirely true but some of the things that you know i encountered in that literature are are really pretty shocking such as the long history of you know the us eliminating you know, or lar- lar- way you know lowering the output let's say of uh, of grain uh, production in uh, the Soviet Union, Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, with uh, biological attacks, uh, the um, killing of hundreds of Cubans with uh, U.S. biological attacks on Cuba during the Cold War. Cuba has officially accused the U.S. of doing that, by the way. And the man mm-hmm. that they directly accused of being involved in that attack uh, was the lead author of the Lancet paper that uh, pushed back uh, against the artificial origin theory of covid which, so he was the key person in spearheading the uh, push for the, you know, believing that COVID was naturally occurring, and on, on, on. and then of course there you know, and then things like the uh, oh the the Soviet bioweapons program mm-hmm. um, according to that book. Oh boy, which of those names? Uh, I'm forgetting the the title and author of of a particular one of the many books about sort of the history of you know biological warfare during the Cold War. It's by some people who were you know the authors were leaning towards being sort of on the the American uh, propaganda side of things. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure if they're telling the truth about everything, but but and in fact I'm sure they're not. They were they were spinning this U.S. versus Soviet germ um, warfare. Uh, encounter mm. <laughs> to favor of the American side. But they, you know, they described, for example, that in, in, towards the end of the Cold War, uh, the uh, Russians, USSR at the time, had, uh, officially signed on to the, uh, the treaty, the German warfare treaty with the Americans pushed by uh, the biological weapons confession that Nixon, uh, pushed through in around mm. 1970. But in reality, the Russians had continued with their program secretly and they had uh, this enormous capacity of incredibly lethal uh, biological pathogens in they had like thousands and thousands or millions of gallons of this stuff in stored in silos. Uh, they had warheads filled with it ready to fire at a moment's notice And according to this, it was Mangold and Goldman are the authors of this book. Uh, According to the claims in this book, uh, had a full scale nuclear war erupted between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, more Americans, meaning essentially all of them, would have died from biological weapons than from the actual nuclear blast.
1: Well, yeah, you know. That could be true. It could be propaganda. I mean, right. what does come to mind is, is of course, the Novichok um, saga, you know, the, the poisoning, um, the Screepow poisoning in, in Britain. Um, I, I take it you're familiar with that. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a strange yeah, saga. Well, that's a strange saga and interestingly linked or there's an interesting link with U.S. politics, of course, and um, the the P-tape dossier on Trump. And the link being that uh, Skripal's handler was Pablo Miller and Pablo Miller worked in the same company as uh, as Steele, who produced the dossier. The P-tape for, um, condemning, uh, Trump as being sort of, you know, sort of engaging in various activities whilst in, in Russia and basically being a pawn of the Russians. So interesting link there. But going back to the Novichok, I mean, if you look at the history of Novichok and a colleague of mine, Paul McKee with the working group in Syria did, uh, wrote a paper on this. People can find it on the Working Group website, the working Group Syria Propaganda and Media, and looking at the history of this kind of, and it's effectively a construction of this incredibly dangerous Novichok weapon and so on, um, and it all looks incredibly constructed. From beginning to end, and it does start in the period you were talking about, you know, the end of the Cold War and, and the biological programs and so on. Um, and you know, what is it? What do we know about Novichok now? I mean, it's, it's chemical compound. I mean, clearly sort of with, with discrete poles, they weren't actually killed with its use. So whatever was used on them is, is, is an open question on that front. Um, and, and again, you had this kind of, Creation of the impression of these kind of super weapons, which, you know, as, as you describe, could wipe out more people than et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's a lot of propaganda and exaggeration. Um, I've got an open mind on it. Right. Well, I'm certainly not
0: worried. I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go on. Just yeah. say with, with the Scrupble thing that that illustrates how the Western, well, U.S. people, they've, they, you know, they turned the bio-war stuff over to the covert operators uh, after Korea. The U.S. military used biological weapons extensively. We're not sure precisely how extensively, but pretty extensively in during Korea, and, mm-hmm. and of course we're we're directly accused, and and uh, and the POWs confessed and all of that. Uh, but then after Korea it was turned over to mainly the CIA and other uh, covert uh, groups and then it was used in relatively small scale covert stuff although i think they taking out the wheat mm. wheat crops of, of the russians and the eastern europeans that was pretty broad scale but it was all totally covert yeah. it was all cia and so then when nixon signed the treaty in 1970 that that the americans honored the treaty according to various sources between Mangold and Goldman, and shut down the military side, which had been loading warheads full of incredibly nasty biological stuff and keeping these huge silos full of that stuff. Uh, and then they got rid of the Americans, according to these guys, got rid of that and honored the, the treaty in that sense. But continued with what they'd always done, mm-hmm. which is running around using this stuff for all kinds of covert operations, including deception operations, like you're talking about, the Skripal. Mm-hmm. And then the Russians supposedly, according to Van Gold Goldman, didn't honor the treaty. They evaded it, continued and did even worse <laughs> after they signed the treaty and had all of these huge warheads full of stuff uh, ready to fire at a moment's notice. Uh, so the point being that that the history of the use of biological weapons has almost all been covert and deniable, often small time and often uh, in sort of deception operations like the street ball operation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think I I don't want to pass judgment on on these big literatures out there on the biological weapons histories, etc. I, I think it's just important to, as one navigates through those literatures to keep in mind, you know, always ask the question, you know, how much of this is looks accurate and how much of it looks exaggerated and, and overblown and so on. And, you know, and of course, you know, my own involvement with the organization of prohibition of chemical weapons in the Syria, you know, for, false flags um you know that that is a, a clear case where you know chemical weapons attacks have been effectively, you know, constructed or they're false flags, etc., and they're being used primarily to um label the Syrian government as illegitimate and to underpin the regime change strategy against that government. And I, I know that from not just the Doomer incident in 2018, but the other in- incident, scooter twenty thirteen, for example, when when you go through the evidence, it becomes pretty, pretty clear that you know you have a combination of um, attacks carried out by opposition groups or you 've had um, essentially staged events and so on, um, including stage events where you 've had civilians murdered etc um, but you know they are still you know being carried out by opposition groups in order to then point thinker at the Syrian government. So, you know, again, there you have sort of in, in the popular imagination, sort of Assad and Syria is systematic user of chemical weapons against his populations. But the truth of the matter is that that isn't what's going on. Um, these things are being staged or carried out by opposition groups. Um, and and it's there to sort of maintain yeah, that maintain a narrative, maintain a delegitimization of the regime. Um and again, all of it in a in a way is is you know a little bit of a distraction of of, of what kills most people in war anyway, <laughs> which is, you know, guns and bombs, um the traditional stuff.
0: Right. So I wonder why the Israelis uh, weren't able to rig up some kind of a chemical weapons hoax to accuse Hamas uh, for the October 7th attack. Instead, they're making up all sorts of crazy stories about 40 beheaded babies and uh, and ostensible rapes that nobody ever heard about for two months until suddenly the United Nations was about to Uh, look into a ceasefire resolution and then suddenly we hear about all of these rapes that have absolutely no evidence, but the BBC is uh, still accepting it. Uh, so why, you know, it seems to me the Israeli propaganda around October 7th has been really bad. And, you know, they're not even working very hard. They're just making stuff up in the most lurid possible way. But somehow it seems that a lot of people have accepted it but in the academy of course there are a lot of people smart enough not to have accepted it and we have a huge anti free speech kind of anti academic freedom uh, backlash going on especially in the United States right now against academicians who've noticed that what's really happening in occupied palestine is almost the polar opposite of the way it's portrayed in the zionist influenced media so then we could segue to that a little bit talk about that propaganda and then uh, the way I, I guess the uh, which which publication was this, the uh, this leading America inside higher ed just uh, reviewed more than a dozen cases of American uh, university professors and and other uh, academicians who've been either fired or uh, punished or uh, harassed officially for their free speech activities, basically because they're supporting the
1: Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I mean as you well we, we should we should move on from yeah the chemical weapons. Um, I was gonna make a point there, but you know, we, we we were we were scheduled to talk about this question of freedom of expression and academia, so we should get on to it before we run out of time. Um I mean in in terms of October 7, Israeli propaganda, I mean yeah, I, I think in, in a sense, as with Ukraine, um the propaganda is extreme and it has become unbelievable to large numbers of people. Um, I do think that there's been a learning curve for a lot of the population over COVID-19, um, where you see and there are much higher levels of distrust of mainstream media than you have before. So a lot of people are seeing through the propaganda in relation to Gaza. Um I think it's a tough one for Israel to sell propaganda wise because what are they doing? They appear to be essentially engaging in a campaign of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. This is not going to look good, however you you know you can't put lipstick on a pig kind of thing um so this is a difficult sell for them um maybe you know. They're not even trying because this is just a, a, a material fight on the ground for territory, um, possibly a broader war in the region. Um, not sure. I mean, they can't win the global audience with this. They can't win the South. There's already too much sympathy for the, for the Palestinians. But maybe out of that is that, you know, this is what we're seeing with the, the crackdown. Um, and that uh, Times that you were referencing article. I mean, this is a pattern we've been seeing across multiple spheres for a number of years now of increasing the um, sort of authoritarian and restrictive clampdowns on academia and on academics, talking about controversial issues. I mean, myself and my colleagues who are working on Syria, you know, we were hit in what was around 2018. We were on the front page of newspapers and so on being smeared for that for asking questions in relation to that. We've seen with COVID-19 a, a vast number of scientists and medical professionals losing their jobs, being censored, being smeared, etc. Um, and now with, now that the situation in the Middle East and Israel and Gaza, this has become getting to this point where, right, they're really going to try and do this now, it looks like, to try and push Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. Um, The only way you can then try and manage this is to engage in just direct suppression and firing and closing down. I don't think it will work. You know, they tried. They were pretty heavy handed with the Ukraine as the Ukraine war started. Hello,
0: Pierce. I'm not hearing you. I assume that. We're still live and we'll uh, get a message from the studio to see, make sure that we're still live. Uh, interesting. So uh, we've, as far as I can tell, we seem to have, okay, we've lost Pierce Robinson, but we're still on the air. That's interesting. I wonder if there's a particular reason why Pierce faded out. Could it be His internet connection. Um, He's just talking about direct suppression. (laughs) That would be ironic if we're experiencing direct suppression right at the moment that he mentioned it. Well, hopefully we'll we'll unsuppress and get him back on here pretty quick. Uh, Okay, we've got Pierce on the call, but no audio. Okay, now we got Pierce left. And uh, maybe we can bring him back in a moment. That's interesting. He he, uh, dropped. So maybe that's a, uh, an internet connection thing. What I, I was, uh, discussing with him was the way that, uh, we've had this whole rash of cases of, uh, of professors being, you know, demonized and witch hunted and, uh, in some cases fired, a couple of cases, I think even arrested, uh, for basically siding with the Palestinians during this genocide of Gaza. It's kind of shocking. I went through and, and looked at the ones that they wrote about in, in this article at Inside Higher Education. And I discovered that pretty much, you know, all of these professors were harassed, uh, punished, fired, or what have you, uh, for saying things that are, to my mind, uh, understatements. In some, some cases, pretty massive Understatements, um, but and and all all of this is being pushed by a couple of these academic uh, speech police kinds of groups, or thought police groups that are mainly run by the Zionist lobby, the pro-Israel groups. There's a Stop Anti-Semitism campaign, which is really just part of the you know Israeli propaganda axis. They put out an Anti-Semite of the Week award. Unfortunately, I don't think I've ever won that, but I'll, I'll keep trying. Uh, and uh, then there's um, oh, a Canary Mission, I think it's called, which is another uh, uh, Israeli uh, academic uh, thought police outfit that polices American academics. Uh, harasses those that the Israeli extremists don't like. And so those people went into overdrive after this um, October seventh, uh, Alexa Storm operation, and then this uh, genocidal Israeli reaction, and so they've been basically uh, harassing anybody in the American Academy that opens their mouth in any way except supporting Israel. Okay, so I I still have the right to pierce here uh, and tell him, hey, you dropped, uh, you dropped from Skype. <laughs> And hopefully he'll uh, email me back and explain what happened. Of course, if his Internet's out, maybe he won't. Um, I I assume nothing uh, untoward has happened to Pierce and or the UK. The Russians do have a submarine which ostensibly can create a 500-foot nuclear tidal wave that's big enough to pretty much uh, end uh, life on the British Isles. But I assume that hasn't happened yet it's probably something uh, a lot more minor that's, uh, it's keeping peers from discussing the crackdown on academic freedom following the Gaza uh, genocide. So, uh, while well, I'm waiting to get my email back from peers. Let's look at some of these cases of uh, people that were harassed over this. Uh, oh, okay. It says, peers says he's back on the call, but when I look at the call, I don't see him. So, uh, Let's see, I wonder, what's up with that? Huh. Okay, how, how odd. Okay, he says he's on, but, uh, I'll see. don't see you on the call. Okay. And, uh, I think, I think all what Piers needs to do is click and rejoin this particular call. Okay. Let's see. Piers, hello. Yeah, he's not, not listed as, as on the call. So let's see if he's uh, shown up on his Skype account. Uh, okay. I don't. He is, uh, you need to rejoin the call. I wonder if he's like out on vacation in the British countryside or something like that. Uh, where he's got lousy internet. Because here I am in Morocco. With, uh, relatively reliable internet. And here's Pierce in a supposedly, you know, leading Anglosphere country of the highly technologically sophisticated United Kingdom. And, uh, he can't keep his internet connection going. Of course, maybe it's, it's that, uh, that British, uh, Israeli lobby. Uh, they do seem to find ways of shutting people up. But hopefully that's, uh, that's not what happened here. And he, uh, anyway, well, who, so who are some of these people that have been targeted by the Zionists? Well, Keith Whittington at Princeton University uh, has, uh, let's see, he, he says that the universities are on hair trigger. Uh, they're watched by pressure groups, and those pressure groups are associated with donors, uh, donors being <laughs> uh, his euphemism. For, uh, for rich uh, Zionists. And I won't say what Zionist is a euphemism for. Anyway, uh, Kristen Shaverdian uh, of Pan America uh, has said that there's been a, a chill cast on speech since October 7th. And let's, you know, if we look at some of the people who've been uh, harassed and fired and so on, let's see, who is there? It there's there's looks like uh, a Professor De Cristo of American studies at the University of California, uh, UC Davis, which is actually where uh, I, I received a, an offer to teach uh, under a uh, I think that was a Rockefeller or no Ford foundation grant. Uh, my academic career actually kind of ended mainly because I, I chose not to accept that position instead stayed at the university of Wisconsin did nine 11 truth work. This was back in 2004. And uh, anyway, here's de Cristo uh, at u c Davis who was speaking out uh on on Palestine uh, posting a cartoon and uh, rather emojis that I guess that the Zionists didn't like um, and uh who else do we have here uh we We have a long list of these people like uh like a dozen or something. Dr. Abir Abu Yabas at Emory University, uh, who tweeted, they got walls, we got gliders, glory to all the resistance fighters. Well, that's uh, pretty much how the majority of the world reacted, uh, to Alexa Storb on October 7th. But I guess you're not allowed to be part of the majority of the world if you're teaching at an American university like Emory. And so he, uh, I think he, he actually was uh, forced out of the university, according to this article at Inside Higher Ed. Um, others include, let's see, who, do, who who are some of these other people that have been witch hunted? Uh, Russell Rookford at Cornell University, history professor, who said he was exhilarated by Alexa Storm, as again, the major vast, 95% plus of the 2 billion people in muslim majority countries would were certainly exhilarated by that as well as the great majority of people all over the global south pretty much everywhere but you know the us and europe and even there the not so brainwashed people uh, are always happy to see a uh, a breakout from the gaza concentration camp all right i got my email from pierce robinson says he's on skype uh you need to join the call There there is a call, a group call uh, that you need to click. And hopefully he'll figure that out. Okay. Um, He says he's on Skype, but he seems to think that we can somehow just magically bring him up. Uh, You need to click on the Revolution Radio group call. Okay. Well, this is the problem with live radio. I can't produce a finished, polished, finished product as easily and predictably as I can if I pre-record these shows. Uh, and the problem is that a lot of my guests are, you know, either. Hello. Oh, Piers, you're back. Hey, welcome back. Ah,
1: what, what on earth happened there?
0: I have no idea. You you dropped. Uh, did you, do you have an internet connection that sometimes drops?
1: No, I mean, I, I, I was sitting now. I was listening to you talking, um, and there was nothing, uh, and you couldn't hear me. Oh, you, you, you could hear me through Skype. I, I could hear you through. So I, you, you were trying to. You kept on talking and saying, "Where are you, Peter?" And uh-huh. um, you obviously couldn't hear me. Um, Right. Yeah, that, that's that's what happens
0: when Skype, I guess, drops. But it's interesting that it dropped without you getting any message telling you that it dropped or your call disappearing yeah. and you're having to rejoin the call. That's that's very odd. Anyway, well, <laughs> yeah, ever since Bill Gates and Microsoft took over Skype, it's been weird, Uh but. Anyway, we could have our suspicions about what might be going on. So anyway, I I was ranting about all these cases where American professors who are part of the global majority that sides with the Palestinians and actually, you know, basically cheered for the October 7th Al-Aqsa storm concentration camp breakout. Uh, these, you know, if you, if you take the position of the global majority and essentially the unanimous public opinion of the entire two billion person Muslim majority countries like Morocco, where I happen to live, you know, so basically nobody here in Morocco could go and teach at any American university because their views would be such mm. that they would be fired. So, you know, what kind of academic
1: freedom is that? Well, we've lost we've lost academic freedom in a very big way. And we've lost freedom of expression more generally. Um, you know, things is and as you know, as as well as, you know, from your own experience, you know, there's a lot of self-censorship in academia, right? You know, sort of people get on in academia by, you know, jumping through the hoops and, you know, uh, avoiding the more controversial areas such as 9-11. Um, so there's always been a lot of self-censorship, but I, I mean, certainly sort of 2016 onwards, when you have this kind of crisis panic over disinformation and fake news, etc., that that has built up into this kind of, and it's created this this mentality, or it's underpinned this, underpin this mentality that um, there's a lot of people who are speaking disinformation out there, and they need to be censored, and they need to be removed. Um, and of course, I mean, it's always the case that anyone criticizing Israel was going to be hit with the anti-Semitism card and so on, and that, that's a deliberate tactic to try and shut down debate and criticism, etc. But it's, it's it's clearly got worse than the last few years. We've seen that as, as saying early with COVID-19 and, and, and a different issue area in a sense of medical scientists and so on being suppressed and being smeared, etc. Um, and you, you're seeing it happening now over Israel. I don't know how much harder they can push all of this. These are censorship regimes, essentially. You know the disinformation uh narrative which is being used to justify closing people down none of this makes sense is completely runs up against all basic principles of you know, rational debates, uh, freedom of expression, why it's important to allow all people to express their opinions so that you can, you know, you can never be sure you might be ruling out the the, the one correct opinion, etc. All of those basically basic free speech 101 arguments um, are just being ridden over roughshod by what we're seeing at the moment. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a very, very Bad phase for certainly for liberal democracies in terms of extremely low levels of of, of you know of freedom of expression. Um, are you still hearing me, by the way? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, you are good, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, um, if I don't uh, hear you, I'll just I'm start not, ranting over you. <laughs> I'm not I'm not being ter- terribly ordered there, but you know. But if you take everything from look at what they're doing to Julian Assange, yeah? <laughs> yeah, and you know he's he's in a prison cell in Belmarsh, and they they want to extradite him to the US and put in jail for the rest of his life and for reporting on Western war crimes. I mean, you know, they're holding that up as a kind of the warning to people. Um, and then academics are getting hit. And, and you know, my own colleague, um, David Miller, was fired from Bristol after a long campaign, um, you know, pro-Israel lobby, trying to get him removed. Um, and they were successful in the end. Um, you know, this is. These are very dark times. Um, as I say, I I have this kind of feeling, so I just can't carry on much longer. I know so many academics now who are out of the system and people who are setting up, you know, alternative academic spaces, even new universities being set up and so on in recognition that we're just in this period of time where people are just you know being blocked from expressing legitimate important opinions on a whole range of issues you know whether it's Israel Gaza 911 Syria COVID-19 etc all of these things the assassinations as well that's the other big one in terms of western history don't matter JFK um, but they can't you know, they can't plug the gaps anymore, is my feeling on all of this. And, you know, the JFK assassination, I mean, you know, obviously, Kennedy's um, uh, his position on Israel and Gaza has been unimpressive. And that's me putting it politely. But, you know, he was openly saying that the CIA killed his uncle. Um, so that's part of the American elite being very open about what happened back then. All of this stuff, you know, is getting out there into wider circulation, whatever. Attempts are being made to shut down and censor people, fire academics. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me me jump in there for a second because I thought it was interesting
0: that uh, Oliver Stone just gave an interview in which he uh, raised the issue that Israel very likely had a hand in killing John F. Kennedy because Kennedy was trying to shut down their nuclear program. And that, of course, was the thesis of Michael Collins Piper's uh, book, Final Judgment. And since then, uh, Lauren Guyanot, the French historian, among others, has worked on that thesis. And it does strike me, I find it actually quite persuasive. Um, And I I wonder how we can explain, um, even when Oliver Stone, who made a JFK assassination movie funded by uh, Arnold Milshon. The the man who a billion Israeli billionaire saym Mossad agent who stole helped steal American nuclear weapons to give to Israel, uh, and he's even admitted that he was the man who produced and funded JFK, the movie directed by Oliver mm-hmm. Stone, and made sure that there was no hint whatsoever of the Israel did it thesis in that movie, but now Oliver Stone is admitting that yes, yeah, Israel maybe did it or had a hint in it, and uh, meanwhile RFK jr who's speaking so sensibly and courageously on so many issues is uh, taking an extremist pro-genocide, you know, like who kind of you know, ultra racist Zionist line, even though it's very, very likely that Israel killed his father and his uncle and who else is going to pick, use a hypnotized Palestinian Patsy for goodness sake. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have not looked into you know these those areas with sufficient depth to to be able to make any you know comment about you know that theory or that thesis. I mean, I I do think. I mean, I, I what I would say is you know, so I'm obviously involved in the International Center for 9/11 Justice now, and and you know, on, on the 9/11 issue and so on. I mean, you know, I I think you know there's clearly a whole number of states involved in that uh, event. Um, but it's still an event which is, you know, explicable through, you know, act deep state actors within the US organizing and coordinating it and being primarily driven from the heart of the empire, etc. Um, so, you know, in the same in the same way that so I, I wouldn't sort of you know point to sort of British sort of role and involvement in directing stuff, you know, I I think it's I wouldn't sort of over Egg the argument that sort of Israel's behind this and behind that and so on. I think it's, it's more accurate to understand these things as a function of empire. Israel is clearly a key ally state of the empire in the Middle East and has served a whole variety of strategic purposes, etc. And and you know that there are sort of you know interweaving influences and so on, or there's an interaction going on there. But still, the big picture in all of this is this is Western empire politics with. You know, the the Israel being this kind of core ally shoring up of U.S. influence in the region and so on. Um, We'll we'll have to debate debate this another time, because we're
0: we're at the end of the show tonight. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I I, I take a different view on that, you know, since. You know, every one of Truman's advisors begged him to not allow uh, the creation of the State of Israel, saying it would be the worst possible thing for the U.S. empire. And I think it has been. You know, not that doesn't mean the U.S. empire is good either. (laughs) In any case, we'll have to take that up another time because we're at the end of the show. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Pierce Robinson. I appreciate your brilliant work uh, and courageous work in standing up against the propagandists from within the academy. It's getting harder and harder to do it. God bless. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. La gente